go ahead and get started. Homework 7. Homework 7 due on Friday. And hopefully I'll remember. I'm going to try to remember to give you homework 8 that day. So get that printed out and get you that get you that ready. Homework 8 will be due the last day of class. So it didn't quite make our list yet, but that'll be due, due the last day of class. Um, the extra credit assignment and the exam are both Monday. That mean or the extra credit assignment will be due on Monday. Exam will be on Monday covering chapters 13 through 15. And then the article review is the one we shifted. That won't be due until Wednesday of next week, so one week from today. Of course, if you get it done earlier, that's one less thing to worry about uh, with Thanksgiving coming up. And then quiz 7, uh, supposed to cover chapters 15 and 16. I'm told that quiz 6 only covered chapter 13. Was that what everybody saw or did they get any questions on the galaxy, on the Milky Way galaxy and, or don't recall? No, that's okay. It almost seemed like some of the stuff wasn't covered. Okay. I'll have to take, I'll take a look at that and see. And I want to make sure it's supposed to cover 15 and 16, but I will take a look at it later today and make sure that's what it's, that's what it's covering. And I'll take a closer look at number, at number six as well afterwards. And then uh, the following week, the Solar Observations Project will be due the 4th of December. So it's due the Wednesday, so two weeks away. So coming up, coming up towards the end of the class uh, very quickly. There's only a couple more things to add on there. We have... Well, the homework I mentioned, we have one more, two more quizzes, uh, quiz eight, and then the fourth iTunes quiz, which will be available during final exam, exam week, and then the final exam. So, coming up towards the end, end quickly here. Any questions on anything then? I will take a look at both of those quizzes, though, and check that out. No? No? Okay. Okay, maybe I need, let me take a look at those questions. I may need to make some adjustments on that, on that quiz. I'll take a look at it and see. All right, well, picture of the day then for today. I think they did that just for us. So, nice picture here. This is a, the heavy black hole jets. So, beautiful image here. Drawing, actually. No. Can't actually get images like this. It would be wonderful if you could really see something like this. This is actually an artist's conception of what we would see. But they picked out a nice black hole for us here in a binary star system, something we did mention. And the black hole, of course, buried down at the center there. Can't see anything from the black hole once you get within that event horizon. But sort of giving you the concept of how that material might be getting pulled off one edge of the star as this star goes through its life and expands. It might start out as a smaller star and not really be affected by the black hole's gravity, be too far away. But when it turns into a red giant or here a blue giant, if it gets much bigger for whatever reason, it starts growing in size, it might end up being close enough that it would begin to lose some of its material and that spirals into a disk of material around that black hole. Uh, that, not the black hole itself, but the material around it, yes, kind of storms right into it. It does look a little bit like a hurricane. You've got the eye at the center, except the eye at the center isn't really calm in this case. <laughs> isn't really calm at this case. The eye at the center is actually the black hole itself, just invisible. But yeah, it would, it would look a lot like a hurricane. Uh, looks a lot like a spiral galaxy missing its, missing its center, too. And then what happens as that material spirals in, 
And we've talked a little bit about jets already. As it spirals in, it heats up to incredibly high temperatures, produces a lot of energy, and then jets are shot out perpendicular to that disk. So as the material spirals in into this disk, the jets of material are thrown outwards from it, from it. And what was found here, this is just from a recent, recent discovery, is that what are those jets made up of? And that's something that they, people have been trying to you know, study, figure out what the jets are made up of. And um, what they're made up of depends on really where, what's providing the energy for them. So what is really driving this? Uh, what is really creating these jets? And it was kind of a debate between whether it's the black hole itself and its rotation that's creating the jets, or is it the accretion disk? The disk of material, is that what's providing the energy for these jets? Yes, in the long run, it's really the black hole because the black hole is doing all of it. But where is it coming from more directly? What they found in these is that they're, they're that's why they're called heavy black hole jets. Instead of having things like just hydrogen and heat hydrogen, which is what you know, most of the universe is made up of, they're actually finding a lot of heavier elements. Things like nickel and copper and iron, some of the very heavier elements, and finding those ions in these jets that are being thrown away from the material. That tells the astronomers who are studying this that it's probably the accretion disk that is creating the jets and not the rotation of the black hole. Okay, this is one example. This is the first example where this has been found having these very heavy uh, molecule, heavy ions coming out in these jets. So it's one case, but it certainly gives astronomers something to look for in future, uh, future studies of these. This was found looking at using two telescopes. It was used a set of radio telescopes in Australia and an X-ray satellite out in space. So a combination of looking at X-ray and radio information to find out. And then, say, somebody, uh, artist, put together you know, a conception of what it might look like if we could get close enough to this object to actually be able to you know, see it in detail. Would you necessarily want to get that close? I don't know how close you'd want to get to it, just from all the intense energy and radiation uh, being, being produced. So. Actually, one that ties in pretty well with some of the stuff that we've that we've talked about in, in class. Question? Question? Yes, sir. Uh, how much do the temperatures get like, in the accretion disk? <sighs> Millions of degrees. I've seen some stuff on that. Maybe, maybe not. You might. You, you get the temperatures that might be hot enough, but would you get the densities enough? Uh, is the question. You've got to get the density. You've got real high speeds. I mean, you've got stuff rotating there at a good fra fraction of the speed of light when you're getting in close. Mm -hmm. And you know, the jets are coming out at you know three quarters the speed of light. I mean, that's not just that's not just fast. Those are fast. Mm -hmm. Those are really tearing out of there. But I don't think you'd get enough energy. I mean, it, it's iffy, but you'd have to get enough density in there, too, to really be able to smash those particles together. So temperatures might be sufficient, but the densities probably are not going to be. Good. Anything else? No, no, no. All right. Well, let's go back and talk about other black holes, then. Let's look at this black hole here. Oh, sure. Could a star be torn apart? Yeah, yeah. If a star got, if a star was traveling and happened, you know, just on that off chance that those two little uh, BBs traveling around this room happened to hit each other, you could, it could be swallowed up by the. More likely to happen, you know, not in our part of the galaxy, but in the center of the galaxy, where the densities are much higher. Where you know, compared to what we have here, you know, between us and Alpha Centauri, four light years, there's nothing. 
And instead of that, in that same distance, having you know, hundreds or thousands of stars, they're much more likely to collide. But yeah, you could, that star could get, could get completely torn apart by the black hole if it got close enough. So if these were to be in a decaying orbit, for example, is that what you're maybe getting at? If this orbit were to be decaying down a little bit, as I point up at the wrong thing now that I've changed the picture, but if it was in a decaying orbit, you could, if it got big enough, you could slow down that orbit enough and eventually they could coalesce and it could actually you know, gobble up the star, essentially. So certainly something that could happen. Yes, ma'am. Off topic. Okay. The rocket that was launched yes. I know it was launching a bunch of satellites, and I'm not remembering exactly what the. Okay. <laughs> you know, I looked at it, and I, I, it's slipping my mind right now. So I do not, I cannot tell you right off the top of my head. But I know it was launching like 39, was 39 satellites or something to be launched. There was a whole bunch of stuff to be launched launched on it. But I don't. I'd, I'd have to relook it up to, to refresh myself. I should have, but. <laughs> Comet Ison is. Uh, approaching, we've got, we're what, 28th Thanksgiving is actually the closest approach to the sun. It's in the morning sky right now. I've seen reports that it has just reached naked eye visibility if it's really dark. So it's getting pretty bright now, so easily to see in binoculars. It's in the morning, it's in the morning sky. You can see it in the east right before sunrise. And that will switch into the evening sky if it survives its passage. And in December, it should be really, that's when it would be the best to be able to see because it will come up into the evening sky after or right before right after sunset. Question or is there a tail? Is there a tail? Oh yeah. Like a, I have like a telescope and stuff. I've been looking for it. I just can't. Yeah, there are let's see. Did they do I'm trying to think I thought they had one a few days back, but now I got to go back and remember which day here. Active comet Ison. Yep. There's actually some images that were taken uh, telephoto sky view. I was just looking to see if it told me how big the telescope was that was used. But I mean, it's not a gigantic one, so you could get a view. You know, ta images taken. You'd be able to definitely see the fuzziness. You'd be able to see the comet, and you'd be able to see at least part of the tail. You wouldn't get this much detail yet, but that's hopefully coming if it survives it. But you should be able to see it out there. And if you keep like if you use the starry night and keep that updated, they update the coordinates of it. You should be able to track as to where it is, where it is there. Uh, it would be out in the east. And I'm not sure. Is it south? I'd have to look up. It's either a little north or south of east. I don't know which one. Yeah, full moon right now, and the moon being in the morning sky is going to make it really bad. But if you think about that, that means two weeks from now we won't have to worry much about the moon because we'll be hitting new moon right as it's coming around the sun and then we should get a real nice, or it'll end up getting destroyed as it goes around the sun and we won't see anything. But can't tell you that until it actually, until it actually happens. So, oops, there you go. <laughs> All right. Good though. Good. Yeah. Try to keep an update on that and keep an eye on it. I say we're only a little over a week away from its closest approach to the sun. So it's getting harder and harder to see right now. That means it's getting real close to the sun in the sky. So it's going to be harder and harder to be able to see it for these next two weeks as it gets, as it gets close to the sun. That week after, as it comes back around, we'll start to be able to see it better again. All right. Now we'll jump back out to galaxies. Uh, there. Find the right button. All right. So we were looking at this one last time. We were talking about the active galaxies, and we looked at the Seifert galaxies. We talked about radio 
galaxies. And I'd gotten partway through quasars, so we're still talking about quasars. And they were discovered back in the 1960s. This is the first one that was, this, this, is, one, this is one of the first ones that was discovered, uh, 3C273. Which, as like most astronomical objects, is a catalog designation. This is the third Cambridge catalog, so uh, radio telescope. And it was the 273rd object listed in that catalog. So that's pretty much how most of the astronomical objects are listed. But this is the first quasar that was discovered. And before we'd known about these objects, they looked like stars. So looked exactly like a star. You didn't see any kind of spiral arms. You didn't see any kind of extended structure to it. It just looked like a point. But the lines were all way off. There was nothing that matched up with anything that we typically see here on Earth. So here's a comparison spectrum. You couldn't match up the pattern of lines with anything that was close to it. Until someone was able to figure out that, guess what? These aren't rare lines. They're not some new strange element again. They're actually just the hydrogen lines, but vastly shifted over. Really shifted over, not just a little bit. You know, we looked at some of the shifts. We talked about the Doppler effect and how you can shift to things a little bit. But this is really, really shifted out by a tremendous amount, meaning that it's moving very, very fast. And from Hubble's law, if it's moving very, very quickly away from us, it's got to be very far away. So solve the problem, right? Oh, we identified them. It's no big deal. They're just very far away. And in fact, 3C273 is turned out to be about 2.4 billion light years away. So definitely not a star, well outside our own galaxy, well outside the nearest galaxies, but not near to the edge of the universe even. You only, only, only about two, two and a half billion light years away. That's about one of the nearest of, the, of, the, of the, what we call the quasars. So we solved one problem. We figured out what they were, but we created another one. Okay. So now we know what these things are. They're just some very di they're very distant objects. That explains the we explain the unusual spectrum. But now we've got to explain how we can get these little tiny objects to be among the brightest objects in the universe. Should be universe, not galaxy. Not among the most luminous objects in our galaxy, but in the universe. And if we look at 3C273, it has, what do I have? It has an apparent magnitude of 12.9. What does that mean, right? Six was what you could see with your naked eye. Binoculars will get you down to, depending on the quality of the binoculars and things, you know, tenth magnitude. A small telescope would be able to see this. No, don't need a big telescope, five, six inch telescope, be able to pick up this object and see it. Would you see much? No, you'd see what looks like a star. But you would be able to detect this object through a small telescope. But it's that far away. This thing has to be incredibly bright and emitting an incredible amount of energy. Remember we had two magnitudes, we had an apparent and an absolute. Just for comparison, its absolute magnitude was negative 26.7. That may not sound familiar, but we actually mentioned an, a, a magnitude of negative 26.7 before in class. That's the sun. That means if you could take this, this quasar, 
bring it to 10 parsecs, 30 light years away, this star would be as bright as the sun in the sky at that distance. That's how much energy it's putting out. It's putting out as much energy as we get from the sun at one astronomical unit, really close, as this thing would if it were 32 light years away. That would be emitting exactly as much energy, as bright in the sky as the sun. So if you could put it 30 light years away, light up the sky, light up the whole, light up the whole sky with that much energy from this one object. So that's why we can see these things over a tremendous distance. So gives us a new problem is how do you get that much energy? You know, nuclear fusion can't come close to doing that. Now of course we know now, we know about black holes and things, we've been talking about them, but those were still you know, concepts and ideas that were being thought of you know, back in the 60s. It's not something that we fully understood. So how to get this amount of energy was something difficult. How were we able to get that? And this is just an example. We looked at this in terms of like a radio galaxy, but something what you see down at the center sometimes is actually the quasar emitting and emitting these jets of material. Just saw that from a black hole in the picture of the day for today. So we had a black hole doing the same kind of thing. Well, the quasar can do it on a much bigger scale. That one we looked at for the photo of the day was a solar mass black hole, maybe two, maybe five, you know, some, some ten times the mass of the sun something close to the mass of the sun. Here you now have that same effect going on on a much larger scale. So instead of being you know, 10 times the mass of the sun, you have a black hole there that might be millions of times the mass of the sun, tens of millions of times the mass of the sun. So everything gets scaled up. It could be you know, a million times bigger than that black hole. And that one was emitting a heck of a lot of energy. This one would be emitting even more. So a lot of energy going on, so that's where this energy is being produced to make this thing so incredibly bright. Most things, you know, 2.4 billion light years away, you're not going to see. You're not going to see them very easily. Yeah, with a big Hubble Space Telescope, big professional telescopes, this one, not that far from binocular range. Not that far from, a little bit too faint, but not that far from being picked up in a pair of binoculars. So an incredible amount of energy that's being produced in, in these. And that's the subject of the last section of this, of this chapter, which is, what's this, what is what is going on at the center? What is happening that is producing all of this energy? So this is sort of what we see, sort of a listing of what we see in these active galaxies. Most of them have all of these, some to all of these different, um, different properties. But they're all very luminous, all very bright. By comparison, so if you compare an active galaxy to a normal galaxy, they all have very, very high luminosity. They're very bright by comparison. They don't have, they have energy emission that is not just from stars. Shouldn't say that they have all of this. They have, certainly there are stars in active galaxies as well. It's not like they have no stars. But their energy emission is dominated by what's going on at the core. So. While you have all those stars nicely glowing in the outer parts of the galaxy, and they're giving you lots of energy, you've got three, four, five times as much energy coming from this one core, and that overwhelms everything else. So you get primarily the non-stellar energy emission, so energy that is not just coming from the emission of stars. You get also that the energy output is variable, gets brighter, it gets fainter, and it does that on very short times. So it can change over the course of months, 
few years, even a few years is telling you a pretty small size when you're talking about something of this mass. If you're talking about something that varies in a couple years, you're talking about light years in size. That's pretty small, a pretty small area to put 100 million, 100, no, tens of millions of solar masses, tens of millions of suns. That's a pretty small area in which to squeeze that. And you get down to some of these that have been studied that have gone down to vari variations of you know, months, weeks, days. You know, some of these central portions that people have, been, have looked at have gone down to you know, even things that are varying on days. So you're getting it down to the size of our solar system. Try to put, you know, try to put 10 million suns within the solar system and it's kind of hard to do without it being a black hole. How else can you put that much mass in a very small area? You can't have a star here and another star right next to it and have them all in this great dance so they never collide and coalesce into something else. When you have them that close, something is going, something is going to end up combining together. We also see jets and other signs of intense activity. So lots of, lots of jets of material. We saw that in the black hole for the picture of the day. We see that a lot in these active galaxies. The quasars show a lot of jets. The all the other galaxies will show these other these jets of material. So as the material spirals in towards a black hole. And we also see, if you recall, I talked about this a little bit a couple of times ago, the broad emission lines. So the broader those, those lines get when we observe this, the faster the thing is rotating. So we get very, very fast rotation. Again, there's very fast rotation. There's got to be a lot of material down there pulling this material around. So it's whipping around real quick in this way and then coming real quick away from us. That gives us very broad lines and tells us that it's rotating very quickly. So all of this is what we see. So in order to explain it, then jump ahead. We're going to use a black hole to explain it because that is able to explain how we get high luminosity, how we get the non-stellar energy emission, why so much of it is dominant at the core, why we get this variation, especially on very small time scales, how we can get the jets, and how we can get the rapid rotation that's associated with these. So here's a picture. Should look kind of familiar, almost like what we were looking at before. But there's the material uh, collecting around the black hole. Black hole there is at the center, invisible still. You have an accretion disk around it, a disk of material that is flowing in. Sorry, in this case it's going around this way, that is flowing into the black hole um, very slowly. So black hole kind of gathers matter. You can't just send material into a black hole you know, directly. It just doesn't go in like that. It spirals in and it will take it a long time to slowly work its way in and down towards the black hole. While it does, it gets heated up to extremely high temperatures and emits a lot of energy. So that's where most of this energy is coming from that we see. It's not from the black hole. We can't get any energy from the black hole. We can't see that. But all this material around it that's been heated to incredibly high temperatures, now we can see energy emission here. And we also get those jets that form. And what you get is you get some kind of magnetic field that will generate within this accretion disk. And that magnetic field ends up beaming the particles. You get a beam of particles going this way and a beam of particles going that way. So some of the material goes into the black hole, some of it escapes. Not from the black hole, but from the accretion disk. So you can't get out if you cross the event horizon of the black hole. But if you get close, but you can get close, and some of these particles can then end up streaming out, and that's what we see as those jets of material. 
So this is right now what we think is you know, the model for that active galaxy. What type you get in many ways can depend on the type of the galaxy and in how much you're feeding the black hole. Our galaxy has a black hole at the center, relatively small one, uh, by these standards of these active galaxies. But if you were to feed it, if you would actually put some material in there and let it, let it start to accrete that, it would develop and be you know, sort of a little Seifert galaxy. It would be like our galaxy would, have, would become an active galaxy if you feed that, uh, feed that black hole. If it sits there and it's quiet, if it's not gathering a lot of material, it's pretty much just going to sit there. The black hole is not going to do much of anything that's visible until you give it some food. Until you feed it and let us actually and give it a way to emit energy as that material is spiraling in. So we've talked about Andromeda, a collision coming up in a few billion years. right? That's a good way to feed this black hole. That will probably energize the black holes in both galaxies and have them not only undergoing more star formation but have their centers get more active than they are right now. So any type of collision like that between galaxies will add material that can then be collected by the black hole. Over time, it will finally collect that material and then quiet down again. So only time we see this, we see these active galaxies, is when there were likely a lot of collisions going on, a lot of material for that black hole to collect. And we get to the, some of these active galaxies. Again, if you recall, I think I said it was about 3.7, I think is the number we gave for the black hole at the center of our galaxy. In some of these big active galaxies, measurements that can show up to billions of times the mass of the sun, you know, quite a bit, quite a bit of matter there. Just in that black hole. That's not counting all the rest of the material around it. That's just counting that black hole. Some of these big active galaxies, there's a lot of material that has been gathered into that black hole over the history of the universe. The accretion disk is not just like the little accretion disk we saw in the first picture today. Right? It was gathering material from the star. It was pulling the outer layers off of the star a little bit at a time. This accretion disk for these black holes would be entire gas clouds. These things that are hundreds of solar masses, thousands of solar masses. Things that would form clusters of stars. Well, thinking way back to star formation chapter. Those whole, those whole gas clouds are being accreted. And Stars themselves. If you have stars that have formed that get close enough, they can get close, they can become part of this accretion disk as well. They lose a lot of mass. That's not just mass being sent back out into space in terms of these jets. This actually is mass that is lost, converted into energy. So you convert 10 to 20 percent of their mass to energy. We did nuclear fusion. You convert a tiny, tiny fraction of a percent of the mass of the hydrogen atoms, four hydrogen atoms to one helium atom. It's a tiny fraction of a percent. Here you're converting 10% to 20%. You know how much energy we get out of a star, right? That's just that little tiny bit of mass being converted to energy. If you can convert 10 to 20% of the mass of a star into energy, then you can start to get the amount of energy you need to be able to see something over billions of light years that you'd never be able to see otherwise. So as that accretion disk spirals in, there's enough energy being produced as it spirals into that black hole that it can convert 10 to 20 percent of that mass into energy. E equals mc squared, right? So m times a really big number squared to the, sec to the second power is an incredible amount of energy that can be emitted. And that's where all of the energy from these active galaxies that we've talked about is likely coming from. 
We did see some of the jets. Here's a couple images. Uh, there's one here in radio. There's a visual image here. And then the radio image, you pick out the jets. You get some really pretty, pretty views of them. Uh, this is actually a visual image. Looking down in, in there, you can actually see part of one of the one of the disks of material that may not be an accretion disk, that may be another ring of material. We have that in our galaxy. There's a ring of material further out, so sort of in layers. You might be seeing the accretion disk way down in the center, way down in the center here. But you actually have a ring of material looking down at the beginnings of where this jet is actually, actually coming from. So you get some really nice pictures in these. And this is trying to find out again, still trying to look at that black hole. And we've taken an image here. This is a uh, galaxy. This is a large uh, elliptical galaxy in the constellation of Virgo. And there's the center of it. There's the outline here taken in the infrared. There's the jet of material that you see when you're looking at this core. If you then zoom in and look at that core a little bit more closely, this is a nice close galaxy. So we can see it in a little bit more detail. And you take a measurement and you want to measure this side. How fast is that moving? And you find out that this side is coming towards us. We measure the spectrum, we get a big blue shift. That, the lines, the hydrogen lines are shifted way to the blue. When you measure the opposite side, take a spectrum of this, you get a big red shift. If we look at the difference between those two, the further they get apart, the faster that thing is rotating. If you start getting an idea of how fast it's rotating, and you get some ideas of the distance, you can actually determine the masses and find out how many millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of masses have to be in that very small core. Again, you can't just squeeze that many stars in there. You know, technically, yeah, you want to pack them side by side, but that's not going to be stable. You, know, you could technically line up stars and make that and get it in there. But the only way to get anything that's working like this is to have a black hole there at the center. All right. Now, when you have this material heated up to these high temperatures, you should get X-rays, gamma rays. I mean, you're heating things up to you know millions, millions, tens of millions of degrees. The corona of our sun was millions of degrees and emits a lot of a lot of X-rays. So if you heat these objects up to them, we see we should see a lot of X-rays and gamma rays, or actually the whole range. What we see sometimes though is prim primarily infrared radiation. And like those, uh, the radio galaxies that we looked at, this is likely due to uh, our perspective, how we're looking at it. So if we're actually looking down the beam towards the jets here, you're going to get all the radiation. You don't have a lot of material. You don't have that disk of material surrounding you. Here's the accretion disk. You don't have that. The material comes straight out. You're going to see everything. You're going to see lots of x-rays, lots of gamma rays, because there's no material for them to pass through. When they come out this way, if you're looking sort of through the disk, that material, all those x-rays and gamma rays that are produced are going to be constantly absorbed and re-emitted and absorbed and re-emitted. And they're eventually going to escape as infrared radiation. We kind of mentioned this back, way, way, way back when we talked about the sun. Our sun does the same thing. Okay? The energy being produced at the center of the sun is not visible light. Right? If you could strip away all the outer layers of the sun and just have the core exposed, and get that energy coming from it, it's all gamma rays. So it's all gamma rays coming from the sun, but that material, those gamma rays get absorbed and then re-emitted. And as they do that each time, 
You know, one gamma ray is slowly changed into a thousand x-rays, and each x-ray is slowly changed into thousands of ultraviolet photons, and then those become you know, hundreds or so of visible light photons. So it's a slow process changing that. But the, the active galaxies likely do the same thing, because we see some that emit a lot of infrared light, and we don't see a lot of the x-rays or gamma rays, although we'd expect to. We would expect to be able to see them, because that's the kind of energy that's going to be produced at the temperatures we'd get in this accretion disk. But we're not, we're, not see, we're not seeing them. So black hole at the center, accretion disk around it, then an even wider uh, disk of material, sort of a donut shape of material further beyond that. And all that is slowly working its way into the black hole. But again, you're talking long astronomical type time frames. You know, not something that the black hole's there and it's going to suck all this up and tomorrow it's going to be done or a thousand years from now, or a million years from now. You're talking you know, many millions of years that it takes for this material to slowly work its, way, work its way in. So we actually come back a little bit in the next chapter and look a little bit, little bit more at these active galaxies. So, Questions? No? No? I think I got a little summary for you here if I'm counting right. Oh, I had one more, I had one more slide. I was miscounting. All right, I have a shorter summary this time. All right. The other thing that we see is the type of radiation. I told you the type of radiation was different. And I never really named it. I'm just naming it here for you. It's what we call synchrotron radiation. So that's what we see from these active galaxies. From a normal galaxy, we see what we call thermal radiation. That's the stellar. That's the radiation of stars. Has this distinct pattern. Rises up slowly from the very long wavelengths here up to around visible light, infrared, visible, ultraviolet, peaking in that range, and then drops down very, very quickly at the high energy wavelengths. Synchrotron radiation gives you a lot of radio radiation and then slowly drops off almost as a straight line as you go towards X-rays and gamma rays. But, so in terms of where you see the visible light, it primarily comes from the stars. It overwhelms the synchrotron radiation. But when you look in the radio, that's what you see. When you look out in the X-rays and the gamma rays, you primarily see a lot of this energy from what we call the what we call synchrotron radiation. Synchrotron radiation is simply because the electrons are moving around the magnetic field lines. When you accelerate a particle, you excite it to emit energy. So as these electrons spiral around these magnetic field lines, travel along those, they constantly are emitting energy with this type of spectrum. So completely different. You can measure the spectrum, you can measure how much energy a galaxy is emitting in the radio, compare that to what it looks like in the visible, compare that to what it looks like in the x-rays. You can easily identify active galaxies that way because they have a completely different spectrum. It doesn't look anything like the spectrum of stars that we see from most galaxies, from you know, two-thirds to three-quarters of all the galaxies. So that's just the type of radiation we see from the electrons moving around in these galaxies. Now I'm on to the summary. All right. So what we looked at in 15, we looked at the different classifications. We had five different types of galaxies. Uh, I only gave you four of them there, but there were spiral galaxies, barred spiral galaxies, elliptical galaxies. We had the lenticular galaxies, which I did not put back up there, and the irregular galaxies. So five different classifications of galaxies. They're all organized by their shape. How do they look? 
So it has nothing to do with any other properties of them. It's just their appearance. We also see, we've got some more ways that we finished up our distance ladder here. We got standard candles. We used RR Lyrae stars within our galaxy. Worked pretty good. Type 1 supernovae worked us out, you know, chunk of the way, maybe a quarter of the way to the edge of the universe. That are objects that are uniform in luminosity. It means they're all the same. So if you find one RR Lyrae star and you know how bright one of them is, you know how bright every single one you can find in the universe is. If you find one type 1 supernovae, Nova, you can find one in a distant galaxy, you know exactly how, literally how bright, what its absolute magnitude is going to be. And then you measure its apparent magnitude and calculate a distance to it. In terms of clustering, we find that the galaxies actually group together. We're part of a little tiny cluster called the local group. It's only got about 40 some galaxies in it. And three major galaxies, our galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, and another spiral galaxy uh, near Andromeda. That's what we call the local group. It's sort of at the very edge of the Virgo cluster, which is pushing 4,500 galaxies. So ours with 45, theirs with almost 5,000. We're not much of a cluster. We're just kind of a little tiny cluster on the outskirts of this major, major cluster. And that's not even the biggest cluster. I mean, they get bigger and bigger than, than that. The galaxy clusters can contain you know, small clusters. You could have tens, tens of galaxies like our own. You could have other ones that contain thousands, many thousands of galaxies. And then we'll find out coming up that the clusters actually cluster together. So you get clusters of clusters. So you get groupings of many clusters of galaxies together. And we'll get that as we start to look towards the edge of the universe. Last time we looked at Hubble's law, which really gave us a way to determine distances because all we had to do was measure how fast a galaxy was receding from us. How fast is it moving away? We'll talk a little bit more about the expansion of the universe in chapter 17. And that gave us the distance. Very easy to get. Errors were pretty big though. Right? The constant that you need in this was somewhere between 50 and 80, which is not just you know, a 10% error. It's you know, pretty big. But it's narrowing down. And as astronomers get more and more measurements and better able to see further out towards the edge of the universe, they're able to get even more, even refine that measurement even more. And you know, over the coming 20, 50, 100 years, we'll get even better measurements on that. And then we finished up. We talked about active galaxies. The big difference between an active galaxy and a normal galaxy is that the active galaxies are much brighter, emitting a lot more energy, and they emit a completely different type of radiation. They emit what we call the synchrotron radiation. So it doesn't look like the combined light of a bunch of stars. It emits a lot more radio, a lot more x-rays than we would otherwise see in a normal galaxy. Active galaxies can be up to like a quarter of the galaxies. So it's not that they're that rare. There's a lot of them out there. It's typically any time you're feeding that black hole at the center. Some of the different types we talked about, and I'll come back and we will look at some of these again. Seifert galaxies look like spiral galaxies, but a little brighter or a lot brighter. Radio galaxies emitting lots of radio waves. And quasars, some of the most distant objects and most distant and energetic objects that we can see. They're all very tiny. Their cores, at least, are very tiny. Seifert galaxy is big, but where the energy is coming from is a very, very small area. And they may, or many of them at least, emit jets that are moving at a good fraction of the speed of light. So jets of material being shoved out of them, out of that material towards the core, at very high fractions of the speed of light. Why is this coming? Well, 
pretty much it is the fact that there's a big, a giant black hole at the center. Millions of solar masses, a billion solar masses at their center. As you allow material to fall into that, that matter gets converted to energy much more efficiently than anything we could ever do. And that powers this entire great luminosity of these active galaxies. So, questions? Didn't blow your minds yet, right? That's usually chapter 17 that gets you when you start talking about the universe. So, the whole universe. Give you something to look forward to. No! Alrighty, well let's get a start here. We've got a few minutes. I'm going to get 16 introduced and then we'll pick up that on Friday. So, 15 does end where the exam is. So, 13, 14, 15 will co be covered on the exam. 16, 17, 18 will be part of your final. So, what we're going to look at in 16. How do we form, ga how do we form galaxies essentially? Uh, we're going to get the idea of dark matter. So we mentioned that a little bit when we talked about our galaxy. But I sort of gave you a preview ahead. I said our galaxy wasn't unusual in that we can't account for how much matter is really there. Gravitationally, we cannot account for it. We cannot see everything that's supposed to be there. So there is a large percentage of dark matter somewhere within, this, within our galaxy. But it's not just confined to us. It's every galaxy that we see this. We'll talk about collisions of galaxies. Didn't have to talk about collisions of stars because they're so rare. But galaxy collisions are very common. And then we'll look at how the galaxies formed. How did we form these galaxies in the first place? And a lot of them formed and grew from little tiny galaxies, tiny irregular galaxies, maybe like our own Magellanic clouds around us, that slowly coalesced together and formed larger and larger galaxies. We'll have to go back and look at this. You know, how do they change? So how do we do this and how do we form? Why do some form spiral galaxies? Why do some form elliptical galaxies? Right, we know all these different types of galaxies are there. That's a fact. We can see them. How do we form those different types from the same types of objects? Same types of objects. If you have all these irregular galaxies, how do you form all these different types? And we'll look at that uh, probably coming up on Friday. Uh, black holes and active galaxies. Again, we'll come back and look at that again. And then we'll sort of lead into chapter 17 by looking at the universe on the large scales. So we haven't begun to look at large scales yet. Now we've looked at the solar system. We looked at the galaxy. We've started to look at a, clusters of, a few clusters of galaxies. That's just our very own local backyard of the universe. When we start looking at very large scales, we're talking about those clusters of 4,000 galaxies grouping together with other clusters of 4,000 galaxies. We're talking about the entire, trying to map out the entire universe, essentially, and seeing what the universe looks like on that kind of scale. So. This is what I showed you last time. That nice little pink curve there is our Milky Way galaxy. And that was what we called the rotation curve. Well, the rotation curves allows you to measure the mass because you're looking at how fast stars are rotating at a various distances from the center of the galaxy. So when you're 5,000 parsecs, 10,000, 15, 20, 25,000, you're getting out towards the edge of the visible galaxy, at least for our Milky Way here. And yet the stars are still rotating just as fast or even a little bit faster. That's a problem. That should not happen. As you get further and further out in the galaxy, once you get beyond most of the mass, okay, once most of the mass is inside you, it should behave just like a solar system. 
and the further out stars should move slower and slower and slower. So what you should see is once you get beyond when you're inside, yeah, there's going to be some little things here because you keep adding mass. So you had some amount of mass here is inside you. That determines your orbit. This star out here has a little bit more mass inside it. Right, that may change how fast it's going to orbit because it's orbiting around more mass than you are in here. This one is orbiting around even more mass. But once you get out towards the edge in here, you should start to see, well, you've got most of the mass inside you. You've got that massive black hole. Plus, you've got all these stars inside of you. There can't be much else out there. There's nothing visible. So it should start to go slower and slower, and the star should slow down. Just as, you know, Neptune orbits around the sun a lot slower than the Earth. Takes a lot, moves a lot slower. Well, these stars should do that, but none of them they see. None of these galaxies, there's our Milky Way plus five other galaxies there, and none of them do that. Some of them drop down a little bit. Now this one has a little bit of a drop, but nothing near what we'd expect to see. We'd expect these to drop down very significantly in terms of their velocities. And they're not doing that. So when we measure these masses, we get, oops, sorry, second way to measure their masses. Two ways, because they're both going to tell us the same thing. There's another way to measure masses. When you walk, look at galaxies, you can't sit there and watch them orbit each other. These things take a long, long time. We're talking about a gigantic galaxy moving. And even if they're moving at high speeds, over hundreds of millions, you know, millions and millions of light years, it takes a long time for the, to actually, we couldn't really watch an orbit on any kind of time scale we're familiar with. But what you can do is look at average the mass of the galaxies that you see by looking at their typical velocities. You have some moving this way, some moving this, some moving every different direction. We can measure their velocities with the Doppler shift. So we can measure how fast they're moving. And overall, you can get a kind of an idea of what the velocities are. And they're moving fast enough. If they're moving fast enough, they're going to escape right, from that cluster. If you've got their average velocities are higher than the escape velocity of their cluster, they're going to get away. Just as if you have you know, velocities, if you have a velocity of something on the Earth, like the rocket that you send it up with a velocity greater than the escape velocity, escapes from the Earth. If those are moving average with the, with the greater than the escape velocity of whatever that cluster is, it's going to be pretty high, but some of those are moving fast, then that cluster will not stay bound together. So since we see the cluster today, Right? We see it. It's there. We know that there's these hundred galaxies that are all bound together. Then we know how much mass must be there. We can determine the mass just to say that because these galaxies are moving so fast, if there were less mass here, they'd be escaping, they'd be escaping away and they'd just spread out randomly into space. You wouldn't have just a great cluster. You'd have just galaxies here, galaxy there, traveling at all sorts of random speeds. So in order to have them bound together, to keep that cluster bound together, you figure out, you can figure out how much mass is there. So it's another way to weigh galaxies and galaxy clusters. You can get, the, you can get the, a determination of the mass by looking at their velocities. And just saying that we see the cluster there, it's bound together now. It probably didn't just bind together you know, a million years ago or even a billion years ago. It's probably been like that for a long time. So we can tell how much mass has to be there. So two different ways to measure the masses, and we find essentially the same thing. We find that when we measure the mass of a galaxy, looking at the rotation curves, it might be three times the mass of the galaxy, ten times the mass of the galaxy. 
That's how much matter we need to explain the physical observations. We observe how fast the stars are moving. We might need for some galaxies 10 times the mass that's observed. So for every star you see, you need 10 more stars that are completely invisible. For every you know, uh, black hole you detect, you need 10 more of those, completely invisible, undetectable, in order to explain physically what we are seeing. There's a lot of dark matter somewhere within that galaxy, in fact further beyond the galaxy, to explain what we're seeing. So 10 times is bad, right? How about we look at the clusters of galaxies? It gets even worse. When you look at clusters of galaxies, you can need maybe 10, maybe up to 100 times more mass in order to account for why these clusters still exist today. Otherwise they shouldn't exist. They should have long since spread out. So it's not just that we need a little bit more. We need to throw a black hole in there with a million solar masses. You need to throw in for every galaxy you're seeing with maybe a billion solar masses, you need 10 or 100 more of those. That's completely invisible. Not just invisible light, but everything. You can't detect it in radio waves. You can't detect it in x-rays. It's nothing. It's completely dark. So how do we account for that? How do we account for this kind of mass that we're missing? There's a lot of mass that is invisible within these galaxies and clusters. Or, I think I mentioned last time, maybe we need a better diff different gravity. Einstein still works on everything we do. Could there be something else that works like Einstein on most things, but explains something differently here? That is another possibility. That you know, gravity, maybe our me method of gravity is wrong and there is no dark matter. It's certainly a possibili possibility as well, but without any better theory of gravity that works as well as Einstein's on everything that's ever been tested on, you know, there's no reason to dump out Einstein just because of this. It's easier to say, well, maybe there's more matter there. But Again, it's, it's, op it's open. There's still a lot that we're going to be looking at there. And then I'll come back on Friday and we will, we will pick up here before heading on, heading on to lab. We'll finish up, finish up a chunk of 16 probably on Friday. Questions? No, no, no. 16 is a relatively short chapter, yeah. So I want to get through 16 pretty quick because 17 is the... 17 is the more interesting one. That's cosmology and the history, of the, uni the history of the universe, the origin and the fate of the universe. So that's usually a cool one to, to get through.